0: And welcome to the Wharton Vintech Podcast, the show where we explore the latest trends and innovations in the world of financial technology. I'm your host, Trevor Prince, and today I'm thrilled to have Rob Strathoff, the Chief Executive Officer of Liberus, as my guest. Liberus is an embedded finance platform that partners with companies like Klarna, Barclaycard, and WorldPay to empower small businesses with funding solutions through analysis of data on its partners' platforms. Liberus provides small businesses with pre-approved funding offers and streamlined access to capital. Prior to Liberus, Rob led the corporate development team at wonga.com and worked in tech and fintech M&A at J.P. Morgan. In today's episode, we discuss Rob's professional background, Liberus' business model and how it differentiates itself from traditional lenders, and the latest trends in embedded finance and fintech. Hi Rob, welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. Where are you calling in from today?
1: Hi, Trevor. Thanks for uh, having me on the podcast. I'm calling in from London, uh, Hammersmith to be precise. Good stuff. Where do you guys have your offices these days? So we're based in uh, White City, which is on the west side of London. Uh, We've based here for a long time, but we have uh, offices around the the world. So uh, we're based in Atlanta, uh, New York, um, Sweden, soon Germany, uh,
0: and uh, London and Nottingham in England. Sounds good. Well, Rob, for our listeners who aren't familiar with your background, could you please provide an overview on, on your career up to this point? Sure. I'll, uh, I'll keep it brief. Um, so my career basically
1: started when, uh, when I joined my parents' company, uh, we run a family company in delicatessen and catering. So from a, a young age of around 14, 15 years, I was helping on the Saturdays and some of the, uh, some of the holidays, basically. Uh, but from there I, uh, I ran my parents' company for a bit, uh, whilst they were both, uh, sick. Uh, unfortunately, uh, and what happened after that is that my brother and I set, set up together a catering platform that does business to business catering. So that was my first foray into, uh, into setting up my own company and mm. my brother is still running that. So this is 20 years later, right? He's he's oh, still yeah. running it, making a very good living out of it. Uh, yeah, on, on, on paper, you could basically say he's the more successful one, uh, versus my career at this point. Um, <laughs> But in 2006, I decided the, uh, the international world of finance was, uh, was an incredible uh, opportunity for me. Uh, so I applied for several investment banks after doing my studies in uh, uh, international economics at Erasmus University. And um, to my great surprise, I, was, I got a few offers in for, uh, for banks. And by sheer luck, I chose JP Morgan. Uh, well, not sheer luck. I li- really liked the team and I really liked uh, technology, media, gotcha. telecom, uh, m so I decided that was the the right offer, and uh, you know throughout 2007 and 8, when the uh, the great financial crisis erupted, J.P. Morgan was a very safe house to be at. So I,
0: I made it. I made the right choice out there. What were the uh, What were the other shops that you were looking at at the time?
1: Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, so uh, Lehman, UBS, uh, you know, Dutch Dutch banks like High and g uh, and ABN ro- uh, were on the list. And after you know, I. I st- Done my training at JP Morgan uh, and ended up covering fintech, uh, which was incredible because 2010. Bear in mind, now it's yeah, you know, everybody knows fintech and everybody knows the, the household names of Klarna and the you know, super cool companies. Back then, it was in its infancy, uh, and I started covering the the sector. And uh, within a year or so, uh, one of the companies wanted the IPO, uh, which was Wonga, and they made me an offer to join uh, to run the IPO from the inside, uh, and I mm-hmm. I decided that was a opportunity I couldn't miss. So we was Charging. propelled into um, a fast growth uh, fintech. And to give you an indication of fast growth, I think I was employee number 85 on the list, and we ended up with 1,400 people within 18 months after that. Uh, we're, you know, we're doing 300 million of revenues, uh, expanded into, yep, I think, over 12 countries or so. And within you know a year or so, it it's looked like the IPO was not feasible, regulatory mm-hmm. pressures, uh, you name it, market was falling apart. Uh, and uh, we had to go through you know, all the regulatory scrutiny, ending up uh, basically closing the company in 2017. I think it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, by that time, I'd already left uh, Wonga, and uh, we started up Liberus uh, you know, from um, uh, from 2015 onwards. And you know, the good thing is, you know, despite the fact that uh, you know, from a goal perspective, my uh, my stint at Wonga was uh, was not as successful as I wanted to. I learned a lot of things of what not to do in a company. <laughs> all of that, I applied for Liberus, uh, And number one was, you know, engage with the regulators. Make sure that you actually mm-hmm. uh, stay stay ahead of the curve uh, there. Number two was, um, you know, treat your customers with aim with great respect, but also make sure that they have a product that they'd like to come back for uh, that helps them, all. you know, either the credit letter helps them mm-hmm. s- succeed in their business or in their personal life. So we uh, we designed a product at Liberus the exact opposite way of what they did at Wonga or at credit card companies or, you know, any of these, uh, these high cost short term lenders, uh, which is we only charge one fixed fee upfront. Gotcha. There are changes. So even if you go into default, even if you pay us back slower than expected, we will never up that charge. So we can never throw you into the debt spiral that is so yeah. known by credit cards and rollovers and, you know, mm-hmm. funding the one, uh, the one facility with the other facility, uh,
0: that that was the, uh, the the starting point for for Liberus, basically. Sure, thanks, Rob. Well, I, I want to discuss a little bit more about your background toward the end of the show. But <laughs> taking a closer look at Liberus for our listeners who aren't as familiar about the inner workings of your business model, would you mind just giving a quick overview, um, kind of from bare bones, and then we can go from there? Yeah,
1: sure. So Liberus is a embedded finance platform that enables you know large partners, global partners uh, like Klarna, like Barclaycard, like WorldPay. Um to provide funding to their small business customers, now the way it works is we uh, we can we can turn any platform, any bank, any uh company that serves small businesses into a fintech that provides funding to those businesses mm-hmm. so think about paypal working capital, think about square capital, um you know, all of those uh, household names for small businesses to obtain funding. we can do that with other platforms and other. Uh, payment acquirers who um, we get the data from, we analyze that data and make a pre-approved offer through the platform to that small business. Now, the benefit for the business owner is they don't have to go through the bank, bring a business plan, spend three weeks justifying their business. We see the data out front. We make a pre-approved offer that they can
0: take out in as little as four clicks. And the fastest refund the company was in three minutes and 10 seconds. It's a pretty quick turnaround. I guess how do you think about credit risk, especially in the context of all that data that you guys have access to up front? So credit risk, needless to say, is in
1: everybody's mind uh whilst you're going into a downturn. And mm-hmm. uh, whether we go into a downturn, we're not going into a downturn, it, it seems a bit uh unsteady yeah. at the moment. Uh now the good part is we've got 15 years of data and we've funded we've got more than a hundred thousand uh, credit records or credit uh, uh data points uh for our businesses. So we have a lot of data to work with and underwrite the right, uh, companies. Now, every single platform would say that same mm-hmm. the thing is that we've seen over the last, you know, eight years around Gliberus, we've seen very steady credit performance. And the reason for that is not only our underwriting, but also we integrate with the platforms, meaning that, you know, we get, um, uh, you know, we, we get positive selection of customers mm-hmm. The last thing you want as a lender is any business that types in on Google i need cash right now (laughs) those are the worst customers you've been originally so the way that we do it is positive selection we know that trevor is a great you know you run a brilliant uh econ uh, shop you sell t-shirts from wharton across the world uh you know you do ten thousand dollars of a volume per month we underwrite that ten thousand dollars we know exactly you know you're going to pay us back after you know 40 weeks uh, and we charge you a fixed fee for that let's say 15 Mm percent. now you you can take that fee and actually buy you know $15,000 $15,000 worth of, uh, sorry, you can take this funding and buy $15,000 worth uh, of uh, shirts in China and then have them uh, uh, shipped to you, you can sell that at probably a 100% markup. Mm-hmm. So the 1,500 pounds that I'm going to charge you for that funding, that isn't, you know, it enables you to double your revenues and actually make, you know, 85% more profit. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the the gist the, the of uh, the funding that we provide. That's why small businesses love
0: it. Mm-hmm. And platforms love it because it, it uh, generates a lot of customer um, engagement. Gotcha and understanding that I guess repayments fluctuate with with revenue um, rather than kind of the traditional fixed structure of, of traditional business financing, how do the implied rates on on your guys' funding compare to some of those more traditional avenues of raising capital?
1: Yeah, uh, great question. Needless to say it's not as cheap as going to the bank and getting a secured loan mm-hmm. um, but if you look in the UK and the US is very similar, I believe in the US the statistic is um, female entrepreneurs have a 22% accept rate for funding over I think it is twenty five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Male entrepreneurs are slightly higher, 26% or 28% somewhere around there. Yeah, we have an 83% accept rate at this point. Now, that means actually. It's women is 83 men is 79. So it's, <laughs> we even have a higher accept rate for women because we analyze the data. We don't look at your, your background with it. We look at your credit records as if, uh, any good lender should be, mm-hmm. uh, but we don't, uh, we don't look at your, uh, your, your stats. Uh, you, we look at your absolute performance of your company. Now that comes at a price. So I'm not, not saying that we're the cheapest, but we have the money in your accounts in the U S in the same day or next day. And then you start paying as a percentage of your, uh, uh, of your revenues. So. Even if you go on holidays for a week or, yeah. uh, you know, you have a, a few days off because you're feeling sick, you don't pay at that point. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of inherent benefits uh, for a fixed fee that never changes. Now, if you do the same thing with your bank loan and you go on holidays and you miss that payment, you get slapped with a with a late fee, uh, you have extra interest to de- deal with, uh, yeah. you know, you could get yourself into a debt spiral. That's a very big difference between the two. Now, to put that into context, uh, to just make sure that, uh, you know, all your listeners don't think i'm gauging all the customers <laughs> um, yeah we're very much in line with uh you know with bank loans in terms of unsecured uh, uh, uh fees so that means you know if you look at an apr basis you can go as low as probably 20 25 percent uh, we go as high as probably 50 to 60 percent. now the average so- is somewhere in between there it's probably towards uh, you know more than 36 to 40 percent apr range but again it doesn't bring you into trouble because if you can't repay it you know it will be uh, uh sorry if you can't if you can't repay it as a separate issue
0: uh if you've done all this for a week uh yeah. you will um uh you know, you will be uh you will be repaying it yeah delayed payment versus failed payment are, are two exactly. very different things yeah um so i guess in the context of interest rates you know looking at kind of an increasing interest rate environment how has that impacted if at all um, the demand for liberty services so the core point is
1: the increase in, uh, in base rates or the increase in, in interest rates uh, leads to not only banks charging more or traditional finance companies tra- charging more, it actually leads directly to a lowering of the accept rates. So yeah. now it's not 22% accept rate, but it's probably an 18% accept rate. And that hurts businesses more than actually paying 5 or 10% more interest. Mm-hmm. We've done, our, our accept rates are exactly the same. We just raised prices slightly. Now, uh, the fact that we charge the factor rate um, as, a, as a fee rather than an interest means that for every 1% increase in the base rate, we only have to increase the factor rate by, by about 03 to 0.4%. So gotcha. if you look at comparatively the bank rates versus uh, Liberus' rates uh, that we charge by our partners, um, we actually are getting closer and closer to the bank rates because all of a sudden our, uh, our funding is actually, doesn't have to go up as much as, uh, as the bank rates have to go.
0: Gotcha. And I guess on the other side, uh, on the supply side, how has the increased cost of funds impacted Liberus's ability to, I guess, source capital to fund your loan book? We basically
1: transformed Liberus over the last uh, few years from a balance sheet lender into, uh, into a platform. And the way we've done that is by having several securitizations across the world. Uh, that we have with local banks uh, who support SMEs and we, uh, we work on the basis of securitization at uh, Europe, UK and the US. Now, the funders we have in place are um, uh, Barclays in the UK which is you know, a very uh, stable, steady bank. We had SVB in Europe that is now HSBC mm-hmm. uh, and we're uh, very soon to be announcing a, um, a new facility in the US uh, with one of our uh, uh, bank relationships and, uh, you know, very similar kind of, uh, 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 structure, which is securitization where we secure it completely off balance sheet and Liberus provides a, a small, uh, sliver of the, uh, um, equity for that securitization. Gotcha.
0: That's, that's very helpful. I guess zooming out a little bit, um, more to Liberus more broadly, I guess you've been leading Liberus since 2015. How would you say the company has evolved and adapted over mm-hmm. the past eight years? So it's been one journey. I mean,
1: uh, I think the stats are, um, of all thousand, every thousand customer, uh, companies that are set up, uh, only about, um, 1% get to 10 million of revenues and then only 0.1% get to a hundred million of revenues. Um, so if you, if you look at the dollars, uh, we're, we're getting very close to the 0.1% right now. So I'm incredibly proud that over the last eight years, we managed to get liberals from basically startup, up less than a million of revenues. To uh, nearly 100 run rate revenues uh, that we are right now, but that journey hasn't been easy. Uh, actually, you can have say you can say it's it's been quite tough. Yeah, uh, means you know, you can't you can't keep the same um, uh, team structure. You've been we've trialed and tested and restructured the, the company multiple times, uh, and yeah, you know, that is unsettling for people. But the you know, going from a scale up to a, sorry from a startup to a scale up to a more mature company uh, just involves continually uh, you know assessing and making those uh, those reporting lives more efficient uh, so that's one number two is we had you know the little thing called global uh, pandemic in between yeah, yeah just which, a little hiccup yeah exactly a little hiccup. so if you look at our uh, our journey uh, 2015 uh, we we basically were founded by our uh, founding you know partners uh, which is called Blend & chocolates they're a venture builder in the UK they support CEOs like myself um, with uh, with the necessary funding. So we don't do the traditional capital raising of series a b c d Mm -hmm. it's a very flat structure it's like uh, you know everybody else same class of shares uh, and they just do incremental funding at different valuations Mm -hmm. now in 2019 uh, we managed to line up ftv um, financial tech ventures in uh, based in new york and san francisco Mm -hmm. as a uh, as a shareholder in libros they've been incredibly good for us as well great uh, network uh, great support Uh, and they funded us through that funding was closed in December 19, uh, which was probably the, either the worst time or the best time uh, fundraise, uh, for the pandemic. And that basically tied us over into, uh, uh you know, post pandemic. Now what we did during the pandemic was, you know, all of a sudden 50% of our customers stopped paying us because all those small businesses shut down shop. Uh, all those, uh, uh, you know, we had a lot of, uh, hospitality, we had a lot of brick and mortar, we had, uh, you know, some eco, the ecom side did really good but the other sectors did really bad okay. so you know we were in the same uh uh you know, same position as cabbage and OnDeck, who were sold uh to to other companies because they couldn't make it work anymore we had this chunk of cash on balance sheet in the from december 19 that tied us over so it was incredibly lucky that we uh survived that that pandemic uh, but we got out much much stronger and the reason why we got out much stronger was all of a sudden we had to be very cash conservative so we were, uh, just profitable just before the pandemic, Pandemic wiped out a whole bunch of our revenues, but we, uh, we had to restructure the company. We had to lay off about 50%, completely rebuilt the company as we wanted it to be, including the platform and the platform is highly scalable. It's incredibly well-built right now. Uh, so th- you know, from every, um, uh, you know, crisis comes, uh, you know, comes silver lining, I would say, this is a silver lining for us is our platform right now is 10 times better than it was pre pandemic uh, Great. So post pandemic, uh, we we raised some more equity from Barclays. Uh, they they became a big a big shareholder in Liberus. They support us with funding, but they support us also with a with a Barclays card partnership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, they've they've also been a brilliant shareholder. So with uh, the current uh, shareholders that we have, uh, we've lined up 28 strategic partners across the world. So we're live in the U.S., Canada, uh, UK, Ireland, uh, and uh, basically the entirety of Europe where we can fund, uh, small businesses through those platforms. Gotcha. Now, that journey has been, you know, for going from 20 people to, uh, you know, nearly 180 people down to 90, then now back up to about 220 or so. I mean, that's been a, uh, one hell of a journey over time.
0: Yeah. What, what excites you most about the future?
1: I mean, the, the, we're like a, uh, rocket ship that is, uh, just about to, uh, yeah, we're just taking off. So we're, uh, we're on full, uh, you know, booster fuel. I would say, uh, we are going to the moon and beyond, uh, and yeah, we've got full tanks, we've got plenty of cash. We've got amazing partnerships. Uh, we have a platform that's built for the future. that's highly scalable that we're growing, you know, well in the triple digits, uh, a year on the year at the moment. Um, you know, if we, if we keep executing the way we do the 220 people that we have right now, we can probably double to triple the company over the next
0: year to two years. Now that is incredibly exciting for me. Yeah. Quite exciting momentum for you guys. So I guess moving away from, from Liberus more towards the market more broadly, I guess, what are some of the more significant trends that you've observed in embedded finance recently? And I guess fintech more broadly as well. Yeah.
1: If you look at pre-pandemic i would say it was fintech versus banks or fintech versus traditional finance that line is changing quite significantly i think a lot of fintechs have um yeah you know, i've seen that you know you can give banks a lot of uh, you know a lot of slack and you can tell like you're doing everything wrong etc cetera, etc cetera. but dealing with the regulators and dealing with uh, aging systems dealing with you know, the capital markets and irrational uh, behavior of, uh, you know, of uh, participants. It is incredibly difficult running uh, a fintech at scale. And I think people are, are starting to see that right now. And instead of fintechs attacking banks, they're actually starting to work together and start partnering up with banks, which leads to a much better consumer outcome as well. So I think that's the the, the main uh, trend that I'm seeing is that we're dealing with um, uh, partnerships that we'd never dreamt of. I mean, Barclays and Card as, as a partner, uh, we couldn't have dreamt of that in 2015. Um, yeah, you know, we're together with, uh, you know, with quite a few banks, actually, uh, with Neo banks, like Tide, uh, with platforms, uh, like Vegaro and, um, um you know, in Europe, uh, with, uh, the world pays of this world, the, the Barclay cards, the, the global payments of this world, it's starting to become fintech with, uh, uh traditional finance and traditional players rather than against it. That's, that's why. Number two is the absence of, you know, embedded finance. We're still in, you know, at a nascent stage. the the you know the amount of data that we have and the amount of data that we aren't using, you know, is is significant. We every single month we get a million plus records from small businesses through, uh, and we analyze that data and then bring pre-approved offers to you know quite a few of those businesses. We can do so much more with the data, and there's so much more hyper personalization, not just for business finance that we're doing, but can we do a wider uh, spectrum of products like? instant settlements where we, you know, every single time that, you know, you sell, uh, you know, your inventory and you need money at 2 PM, uh, uh, during the day, you click a button and you get it for, you know, a very low percentage. You get the money settled into your account. Um, can we go into, uh, B2B buy now pay later, which is a, a blooming, uh, industry, but very, very nascent still, um, invoice finance, B2B finance, trade finance, seller's finance. Uh, you've got so many different things that we can go into with the data that we have. Um, so what I'm seeing over the next two to three years is you see companies like Liberus, they'll develop multiple products, multiple propositions, uh, where small businesses are the beneficiaries for it. And they can just focus on running their
0: business rather than dealing with banks. You've spoken in the past about your experiences with regulators at, at Wonga and you referenced it there as well. I guess, can you describe your current view of, of the regulatory environment in your key markets, especially in the context of of the bank failures we saw earlier in 2023? Yeah, so the bank failures were very much contained to um, the US.
1: So there were, there were the, if you look at the regulation in Europe versus the regulation in US, um, any bank below, I think 250 billion of assets uh, was deemed uh, non-systemic and had different regulation than in Europe. In Europe, I believe that that hurdle is like 25 billion or so, much, much lower. It just means, look, it is a very robust system. So from a a banking and regulatory perspective, I'm not worried at all. Um, What is happening across the world right now is uh, consumer duty and consumer uh, care uh, is is a high focus for regulators and rightfully so, Uh, you know, not being grounded and not having the right uh, financial background for financial products that you take out can ruin your future. It can ruin your next 10 years. You can be in debt for, you know, a long, long time. So it needs to be regulated in a proper way, in my view. Um, So here in the UK, they were looking at uh, uh, buy now, pay later regulation. They've now shelved that, which um, I don't think is a good thing, uh, my personal opinion. I think you don't have to regulate it with a heavy hand, but having some regulation on behaviors and what you'd like to see in the market is probably a good thing because you always have cowboys that are doing uh yeah they're just fleecing their customers and my view is you know in the us especially uh there's a whole bunch of lenders that are just fleecing customers they're charging thousands of percent uh fees everywhere it's very um uh you know untransparent opaque is this word i was looking for uh and my personal view is that that needs to be eradicated and some of that can be eradicated by players who behave um with the customer uh, uh you know customer um uh I'd say best interest at heart. Some of that has to be eradicated by the, the regulator just uh, you know, stepping in and, and uh, forcing players to, to behave well. So it's a delicate balance. You don't want to kill innovation with regulation, yeah. but there has to be some regulation across uh, industries, whether it's business finance, whether it's buy now, buy later, whether it's uh, consumer finance, there has to be
0: uh, a bit of an oversight there. Gotcha. And how does that, I guess regulatory environment scale as you move from a, a domestic company to an international company.
1: So we now have uh, you know more than five regulators to deal with uh, rather than just one, uh, and all the regulators have different ways of engaging. Uh, you know the FCA is a very different way of engaging versus uh, the Swedish FSA versus you know the, uh, the U.S. Uh, regulator, regulator, whether it's on a federal level or state level. Uh, so in some states, you need to show the APR versus the factor rate versus total cost of credit. Some other uh, states not, uh, some states you're not even allowed to, there's usury laws. Uh, mm-hmm. Italy has a very strict usury law, and I think it's like you know, anything over 18% is the de- usury law, and you're going to be thrown in jail. I mean, every single country has such specific uh, uh, regulation and compliance uh, demands that you know, we, we, we operate a quite lean um, uh, regulatory, legal and compliance team but that team is on top of stuff it has to be and uh you know as a lender as a uh you know as a company that's dealing with financial services and with regulators you have to take it incredibly seriously nobody gets a gold star for for you know rolling out the best solutions ever Uh, but people do get uh companies do get tripped over by regulators if they don't take it seriously and that's uh, that's the learning that i had from my previous uh company but also the the you know I would say the 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 golden thread through the company is we have to do infosec rights, we have to do compliance rights, we have to do regulatory rights. Otherwise, uh, you know, you don't
0: have a company in a few years. Gotcha. I guess one final thing on the market more broadly, it seems almost impossible these days to not talk about AI and its impact on businesses and and markets. So, I guess from your perspective, what are what are you seeing as um, AI's biggest impacts on fintech and financial services? And where do you see the likeliest areas of disruption going forward? I was very
1: pessimistic in the beginning of this year about AI. And I thought, um, you know, it's one of those hypes that everybody jumps on top. And, yeah, I didn't, well, I I saw the the user case. I didn't see that uh, it had such an impact. Um, Over the past, you know, few months, actually, I would say in Q1 of this year, I was a total convert. Um, I'm a firm believer that AI... Gen AI, not just uh, normal AI, can make a huge difference in uh, the way that people you know, do their jobs, in the way that companies are run, in the way that we can achieve higher efficiency and much higher output per uh, per capita, for you know even on the country level. So I went from skeptical to embracing it with uh, with everything we have uh, and AI, like as in normal AI through uh, Microsoft Azure. Where we actually uh, have an algorithm running in the background. Actually, we have four algorithms running in the background using different data sets to to score uh, our customers. We've been using that for the last you know, eight years. Now, so that that we've got a good grip on. We use a lot of the data points. Uh, you know, it's it's, um, it's it's helping us incredibly well with uh, with our underwriting. But Gen AI in a business context, where you know we now uh, score all of our sales calls are being scored on. Have we touched upon consumer uh, uh rights have we touched upon uh, the cost of credit and apr have we touched upon uh you know uh, the implication of a personal guarantee for customers etc etc we just have a tick mark for each sales call rather than doing the manual review that, uh, of a subset uh, and that's that's the benefit it's, it just you know it's now automated and saves a lot of uh, checking and uh, being on top of things um from an underwriting perspective we use ai to uh, sc- you know, scour the web, I would say, or scour some databases for different naming conventions or uh, different uh, uh, yeah, different uh, information that we wouldn't normally get. Uh, even if right now I ask uh, a summary of, uh, you know, what is, what is Liberus as a company, you know, ChatGPT or whatever, and uh, all the other uh, API or AI, um, um, uh, you know, AI tools, give you an amazing overview of what your company does. Uh, and you know what the rankings are, etc. We use that for for underwriting internally. Uh, you know, writing customer emails or, or follow-ups. Uh, you know, we we use AI to help uh, support us with uh, with you know writing concise emails. There's so many applications where we can probably get 50% higher output uh, from uh, you know from AI. Uh, Notion uh, AI, where we use uh, Notion as our, our central. Uh, repository for um uh, for projects that, as well as information uh, notion ai can can give you a summary of all the information which is brilliant uh, legal contracts uh where we can upload all the uh, all the legal contracts into our uh, our own api through you know delphi or one of the other ones uh, incredible how that helps with uh you know finding finding the right clauses um developers who are using uh you know uh, copilots for uh, for writing code i mean I can go on and on. It is incredible uh, how many user cases there are. Are they all great? Probably not. Can it all bring
0: you 10, 20, 30% of uh, efficiency gain? Most likely, and that's where we're going for. Gotcha. So I guess pivoting back to the personal side uh, a little bit here, I guess some of our listeners are earlier in their careers looking at different potential career paths, including investment banking. You had mentioned you had number of years at JP Morgan, I'd be interested to hear, you know, how your time as an investment banker has impacted your career, any key lessons you learned, um, uh, that have helped you since, since leaving investment banking. Yep.
1: Great question. Um, and there's so many amazing answers running around on the internet as well, uh, on, on, around this, this, uh, yeah, around exactly this question. So my, the way that I have my guiding star, my North point, uh, North star basically Uh, for myself is um if i'm not interested in it if i don't have a passion for it i you know i get disinterested very very quickly Uh, so i love small businesses my entire family runs small businesses i'm pretty good in finance uh, i've figured out after after being nearly 20 years in finance Um, so yeah, combining those two makes it incredibly uh uh, you know incredibly good um purpose-driven uh mission for myself to run libris uh, so make your job not just your job embrace what you actually like doing in your uh in your normal life uh, started off very early for me i always wanted to become an astronaut uh and you know i, I did all my uh my flying all my uh, licenses at age you know 15 to 17 i think um age 17 i was youngest uh, youngest pilot then unfortunately got you know, didn't get through any of the uh, uh the the training uh for fighter pilots in you in, in uh, sorry in the netherlands so i decided the career change but I started off with what I really love doing. Tried tried that, failed in in it, and then started off with you know what else do I really like? Finance and running companies. Uh, so that's one. Well. Number two, surround yourself with um, great people at any time. If you have people that just suck the energy out of you, it is time to say goodbye. And that is hard. It's tough, but it is the only way to actually get you know to uh, get on top of your uh, your ability. You need people that support you. You need people that are, you know, probably smarter than you. Uh, you need people that uh, can challenge you, uh, you know, and I try to always surround myself with uh, uh, with people I can learn from, but also people that just, you know, they don't tell me yes and, uh, you know, at, at every question. They actually hold me in a mirror and tell me, like, you're wrong in this and this is where you are. wrong. Especially my wife is incredibly good at that. <laughs> um, so people, for sure, um, learning new skill sets, don't, you know, the reason why I swapped from catering and delicatessen to setting up a platform to investment banking, uh, then to, um, uh, you know, basically running a company is, uh, and then FinTech is my interest. Like, you know, keep on learning and keep on doing new things. The reason why AI is so interesting for me or Jenna is so interesting. It's, it's a new skill. It's a new thing that is going to revolutionize, uh, you know, the, the way that we work, I'm I'm. I always try to find new things, um, uh, you know, to keep life interesting. I would say so, keep sure. learning and keep a very curious mind, and then your network and uh, relationships. One key thing that you can always fa- fall back on, or mostly fall back on, is your key relationships in your network. So build out that network of people with uh, great backgrounds and uh, people that you know you can learn from, but also people that uh, you know go go places. Uh, you can. Yeah, you, know, you can always do them a favor, and if people come to me and I can do them a favor, I will always try and help them. I'm a firm believer in karma, uh, and yeah, you know, at one point you can you know you can help ask them for help, and uh, nine out of ten times you will get that as well.
0: Gotcha. And I guess it, if you don't mind, would love to pull the thread on your move from J.P. Morgan to Wonga, Kind of how you thought about that decision, you know the the impacts of it going from a large established investment bank to a a newer but fast growing company. Um and any advice for people that are thinking about exploring similar pivots today would be would be helpful. Yep.
1: Um if you're thinking of joining a startup and you know you're thinking about all these stories about how wealthy people got from you know joining Facebook as employee number five or stripe <laughs> or whatever it is, um don't do it. <laughs> because I've seen so many of my friends joining startups, uh, and it all goes miserably wrong uh, at some point. I mean, look at the stats from every 100 startups—like, you know, how many how many fail within three three to five years? Uh, and that that's kind of the the thing. If you do it for, you know, learning new stuff and just going into a new industry, and you know, if you're someone who is very uh, uh, you know very much a specialist, you want to become more of a generalist a real estate startup because you have to do everything there's nobody to you know fix your coffee machine or answer the phones you know i, I remember in the, in the early days being there uh, having having a phone where you had to take the phone home for customer calls in the weekend so if so if customer called you had the red phone you had to take you have to pick it up uh, those are the kind of things for uh for a startup uh, jp morgan uh, very different environment right so very corporate very um uh you know everything is very set in their in their their ways but I learned so much out there. The training program is second to none. The people that are there are each and every one of them are is brilliant. They're so driven. They've got a, a massive amount of perseverance and and energy. I love my time at JP Morgan. I seriously did. I was just bored after six years of doing exactly the same transaction, advising, not really doing it yourself. So I made that jump because I wanted to do something else. I got a good opportunity. Uh, it was a fast growth. It was the fastest growing startup in 2011, I think, in Europe, uh, growing you know, a few thousand percent at that point. Um, and I just saw it as an opportunity to broaden my skill set and not be stuck in banking for uh, the rest of my life. Gotcha.
0: Gotcha. Well, we like to finish off our, our our interviews and our podcast by asking guests about their interests outside of work. So you had mentioned wanting to be a pilot and an astronaut mm-hmm. early on. Can, can you maybe tell us a little bit more uh, about? you know, that experience, um, and, and what it meant to you. Yeah.
1: Look, I, I, always wanted to become an astronaut. I mean, one of my, uh, bucket list items is still, uh, getting up in space and, uh, you know, seeing the earth from, uh, from outer space. Um, you know, we have three, uh, small kids, I'm at the age of five and, uh, my wife and I are always uh, saying, look, they can, they can become anything and everything they want as long as they're happy, but it has to be either formula one driver, astronaut, or they have to cure cancer. Uh, so, you know, the, start setting those, those aspirations very young, I would say, but without joking, I, I, you know, if one of them wants to become an astronaut, I would, I would be so proud and we, uh, it'd be my dream rather their dreams, so and maybe that's, that tells you a bit about it, uh, but to get up that, you know, that first step was, uh, getting my pilot license at age 17, um, you know, private pilot license in Netherlands. And I got my private pilot license in the U S uh, age 20, I think 22 or so. Um, and during COVID, um. I was at home, basically, uh, you know, a bit, I wouldn't say bored, but more like everybody. We were locked up in in Europe, basically, in our houses, couldn't leave. Uh, And I was like, okay, what I'm going to do, I'm going to make myself two to three year commitments of what I want to do. And one of my bucket list items was to get my instrument rating for flying. So did all the studying uh, during the evening hours and at night. And, you know, whenever my kids woke up, I did an hour of reading, uh, did all the classes and things. Uh, And... Last year, October, I got my uh, U.S. American, uh, my U.S. instrument r- rating, and then uh, two weeks ago, I got my European instrument oh, rating. Congratulations! So I'm uh, I'm now allowed to fly uh, small planes in uh, you know throughout you know, every type of weather uh, except icing, I guess. Uh, to um, you know to bring my parents from the Netherlands to here, or to fly my kids to Jersey, or go on holidays. Uh, you know, okay. it's, it's really good fun. It's it's keeping your mind engaged on new information. And the thing with uh, flying and the, the the way that, you know, the way that I put the link between flying and running a business is there's a lot of rep- repetition. So make sure that you have that repetition, like you can get it, get it from, uh, from scratch, from your, you know, from, uh, uh, you learn by heart. Yeah. that makes, that makes you able to always have a plan B and always have a plan C. And we do the same with the business with Liberus. We always have a plan B and a plan C if things go wrong, uh, and, you know, things always go wrong. Ne- yeah. nothing ever goes as planned. I think that's uh, that's one of the key things uh, is you know you can plan for everything. Um, no, sorry, you can execute on your plan, but you you can't uh, uh, you know you can't execute on um, uh, all those plans at the same time. So you have to have contingency plans if things go wrong. Yeah. Uh, and that's basically what we uh, you know, what I learned from from flying as well. Gotcha. You know, if, if I get an engine failure above uh, above water. What the hell are you doing? Like, yep. What are your options?
0: You need to have thought about it before rather than in the flight. I guess outside of hypotheticals, can, can you share one of your more stressful flying experiences that you've had in the past?
1: Uh, yeah, I've had a, a fair few. Um, I think the most stressful one was when I was still training uh, uh, to you know, as a pilot. I was like 16, 17 years old, uh, and there was a, uh, uh, a big Boeing 737 taking off ahead of us. Uh, and um, yeah, we didn't have enough spacing in between. You got those big vortexes behind planes. One of the vortexes grabbed my uh, my wing, and about a hundred feet above the uh, above the runway, uh, swung swung me nine degrees uh, angle. And you know, fortunately, I had the, the uh, clarity of mind to just you know full power um, turn the plane straight and go around again. But that was uh, that was incredibly scary.
0: Also, very good learning. I've never uh, I've now waited five minutes behind a big plane. Gotcha. How have those sorts of, I guess, stressful experiences prepared you for the ups and downs of of running a business or just other areas of life? I think, you know, I mentioned before, planning is everything. Make sure you have uh, you have multiple ways out if
1: things go wrong. Um, but separately, you know, this is uh, flying is slightly different. But um, if we make an error with uh, Liberus and something goes wrong, um, we are we can highly likely. Uh, reset or re uh uh you know basically make whole on on the error so whether we fund someone wrongly whether we take too many payments whether we have an integration that doesn't go well uh we can reset the clock and actually uh uh, you know redo it again nobody dies if we do something wrong uh here so put it in relative context if you're a doctor and you do brain surgery and make a mistake then you know people things go wrong so the difference is if you run a company like Liberus and you want to scale up and you want to grow fast, you know, you have to break things, but then rectify them. If you're a doctor, you have a very different skill set with this, just don't, don't make mistakes. That, and that's, that's a very different mindset than one view. Mean. So we hire people for the mindset of you go very, very quickly. We try to do things a hundred percent right, but if things don't go right, we just, we just mm-hmm. mend them
0: incredibly fast again. So that's, you know, that's the mindset that we try to hire. for. Gotcha. Well, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the Warden FinTech Podcast. It's been a great conversation.
1: Thanks, Trevor. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Warden FinTech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There, you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafa Osteria. And until next time, this is your host, Trevor Prince.